0: Welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Today I will be reading Luke chapter 19, verse 45 to Luke chapter 20, verse 2. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching, the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to the series that we are in right now called History Maker. If you're just joining us, or you're just catching up, or you need a refresher. The premise of our story, of our series, is that Jesus and his life um, is not just something we look back on as historical accounts, even though we have historical accounts of his life, But our premise is that his story, his life, has actually changed ours. We look back or we enter into the story of Jesus because we realize and understand more that it has affected us, that it has changed our lives. And I was thinking of the fact that, um, you know, in the accounts it's described, the four accounts we have for Jesus' life are called, by the biographers who wrote them, the good news of Jesus, and I was thinking about how, you know, if I'm up here, maybe you say like, oh, well, yeah, you're, you're trying to convince us that this is good news. Maybe like Michael Jordan is selling Rayovac batteries, you know? I don't know if you've been watching the Jordan documentary. I'm reliving all those days now with my kids. But I remember this, and you're, some of you are like, Rayovac? Hey. Exactly. You didn't even know that was a battery. That existed anymore. And, and it can be kind of like that. It's like, oh, well, yeah, you know, he's paid to say whatever needs to be, you know, he's a hired uh, gun, the, the pastor, you know, has to say this. But I, I was just thinking, even as I wrote this particular message and what we're going to talk about today, this is good news that has and continues to transform my own life so significantly. And so I feel so free to just share it with you. I'm, an excite, I'm excited about where we're going today. And uh, as part of this, uh, what we've been doing during this series is we have some time to take some questions near the end. And so the number will be up there on the screen. If you're having questions as they're coming up, um, you know, chances are if you have them, other, other people will have a, the similar questions. So don't be afraid to text it in and we'll try to take whatever we can in the time that we have. But I was thinking about how, you know, for me, I grew up in um, in a home raised by two Christians. And uh, my father was an engineer, and then after 13 years as an engineer, he became the pastor of our church. So I not only was growing up in a home with, with two Christians, but my dad was a pastor, and the church and, and that whole Christian faith and Christian community was a big part of my life. And I would say, you know it was significantly a a positive experience for me, which I know is not the case for necessarily everybody, but it was for me. And, uh, And it was something that was, you know, I adopted faith into my own life at a very early age. But one of the things I noted that started to happen as I began to interact with my friends in high school and uh, the people I worked with, I got summer jobs and things like that, and then uh, in university and then the the jobs that I worked in after that was this, this, we would get into conversations about religion and faith in God. And there would be various responses that they would have to it as I would sort of talk about my own faith or my own journey that were kind of troubling or complex for me. Um, one of them was, well, you were raised with your religion. You know, like, Vijay, you believe that because you were raised in a home of people who believe that. I was raised in a different religion, so I believe that. Or I was raised with no religion, so I believe that. If you were raised in some other home, you would believe something else. And that was sort of causing me to think, okay, well, is that true? And we would have sort of debates about that. And they were never like sort of angry fights or whatever, just like the kinds of things that you talk about as you're talking about ideas in that stage of life. But here's another thing they said. Well, Why is your religion better than mine? You know, and it was, we would begin to talk, and people would feel like, oh, so you're saying that what you believe is better than my belief, and that's that's kind of you know a. a That's not really nice to say, or that's that's definitely not, doesn't fit in the culture that we're in now, in a pluralistic culture. And hey, and so we would debate about it. And I would find myself sort of, in one sense, trying to convince them that my religion was better than theirs. And we would have these dialogues. And again, I didn't feel good about that, but I somehow felt like that's what I was supposed to do. That's what I felt sometimes inclined to do, like I wanted to do, but I didn't want to do it and feel good after. And then others would just say, you know, sometimes even at the beginning of the conversation at the end of it, well, it's all bad. You know what? Religion is mostly bad. It's made a mess of the world. Like, it's not good. It leads to corruption. It leads to manipulation. It leads to evil. Just look at the history of the church. Let's look, just look at the history of the world. There's such a thing as holy war, you know. And I was reading about this in the classes I was taking, because I was sort of taking history and philosophy on the side of my business degree, but also in the bars we were talking about this, in the dorm rooms. This was coming up all the time. And again, I would feel something coming up in me that wanted to defend religion, and yet looking at history going, well, I don't want to defend that, but where does that leave me? And so, as I said, it was complex, it was troubling, and it was kind of turning my world a little bit upside down. Um, essentially, you know, where some of these conversations would lead, and maybe this is something you've said before, understood, or whatever, look, it's all kind of the same. They're all religions, like, they, you know, okay, you grew up with this, you grew up with that. But fundamentally, there's this holy idea around God or gods. You know, there's, every religion has some kind of holy God or holy gods or lots of them or a force or whatever, there's holy traditions, there's things you do, festivals, celebrations, holy days, observances, All the, whatever the names are, whatever the festivals are, whatever the holidays are, there's these holy traditions. There's a holy book, whether it's the Quran, or it's the Torah, or it's the Bible, or it's the Book of Mormon, or whatever it is, that's, there, there's some book. There's holy behavior, things you're supposed to do, things you're not supposed to do, things you're supposed to eat, things you're not supposed to eat, the morality associated with holiness, with religion. Well, whatever the rules are, they're different for every religion, but every religion has them. Then there's a holy place, the temple, the mosque, the church. Um, the synagogue, whatever that is there 's some holy gathering place that 's supposed to be you know where holy things happen and it 's a special place and it 's sacred and it 's different than other places and maybe you go every week or maybe you make a pilgrimage once a year, or once in your lifetime, whatever it is there 's a holy place, and then of course there 's holy people there 's priests there 's a moms, there 's a dalai lama there 's the pastor there 's the rabbi, whoever but this is basically what every religion looks like, and they're all kind of the same. You change the, the details are different, but fundamentally, kind of the same thing, and this is what is involved in it. And, and sometimes the response at the end of all this was, look, it's all good, or it's all bad, you know? Um, and maybe you felt that, maybe somewhere in between people would say, you know what, it's all good, they're all trying to make you good people or whatever, or people would say, no, it all makes you corrupt, corrupted, like this is the history of religion, this is what's happened, this is why it's not good. And as I thought about this, and as I interacted about it, and maybe this is questions you've had or dialogues you've had, depending wherever you happen to be in the faith journey, maybe this is a reason you sort of walked away from all of it. You're one of those people who said, it's all bad. Maybe you, know, maybe you don't know how to think about it, even if you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm part of the Christian religion. Where do I fit in all of this? Ultimately, I think what's beneath these, this, this paradigm is that it rests on two premises. One is the premise of contract. A contract, as you know, as you maybe have one with your cell phone provider or whoever, or the lease or mortgage or whatever, has terms. These are the details you should know them. If you're in a contract, don't sign something without reading it. These are all the things you have to do. This is how it spells out the terms of the two parties and how they relate to each other, whether it's a loan or whatever. And that's how it works. And you got to know the terms and abide by them. And if one party breaks the terms or violates, well, the other one's released from the, con- the contract is voided or nullified or violated, and so something has to change. But essentially, people say, well, yeah, religion is that every religion has their contract, right? Whether it's the holy traditions and the holy behavior and how the holy people work and all that stuff. You gotta know them. That's, there's a contract, there's an agreement, and actually not even just with the religion, but between the people and the deity, right? That the religion facilitates the contract between the deity or the higher power or the blessings that you want and the life that you live. And that's what this is about. It's about contract. But it's also based on the premise of conformity. Contract says know the terms. Conformity says live the life, like fall in line. You gotta do it. These are the things you have to do. Hey, it's once a week, it's once a day, it's five times a day, it's every year, it's always this, it's always that place. You just have to do it. There's a a conformity required on the people who are engaged in the contract. You gotta know the terms and you gotta fall in line. And this is the premise of how people say, look, every religion works based on that way. The contract negotiation between you and the religion or the you collectively as a religion and the deity and the higher being or whatever, and then conformity is required in order to receive the blessing, in order to fall in line, and that's what religion does. It says, hey, conform. The the problem is is that results in two um, opposite but equally destructive results. Pride or shame. And, and this isn't just sort of a theory or whatever. I, I would say to you, honestly, as a growing, growing up as a Christian, I saw these things in my own life as I, in a sense, related to my Christian religion in this way. On the one hand, people who um, know the terms well and have a life that conforms. It actually, ultimately, even though the the moral record or the moral um, activity or behavior might look good, and people would say, "Oh, that's a good person. That's a righteous person." Righteousness is actually actually become a negative term because we it's synonymous with will self-righteous. These are people who are proud of who they are and what they do and how they have a clean life and how they're observant and how they know all the terms of the contract and they conform perfectly to the standards that are required. And many people would actually accuse, and maybe rightly, religious leaders, religious people, people who seem as having pride that somehow religion, if you follow, if you know the terms and you, and you conform, you end up becoming proud it actually creates pride. Or it throws you to shame on the other side where you feel like, I can't. I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, act- I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And oftentimes, those who are proud you know, look down on those who are not conforming who don't know the contract well, and it actually leads to shame. Or perhaps maybe you've had this experience where you lived and you weren't measuring up, and then you make a mistake, or then you do something and you never thought you'd do, and it throws you into shame because you feel like, I'm not measuring up. I'm not falling in line. And in fact, I know in my own life, I went back and forth between these things. There are many times where I was proud. I knew I, in retrospect, I looked down on other people that didn't know what I knew, that didn't conform the way that I did. And it wasn't something I planned or knew, no, I just saw it growing up in me. And then there were times when I made decisions that were destructive choices, that hurt other people or someone could come to me and say you hurt me and then I would be thrown into shame in my own heart my, and begin to and so back and forth and for many of us we've lived between these things or we've just thrown religion away altogether because of this but what if Jesus changed history because he changed all of this what if Jesus was doing something that was entirely actually different than All of the holy places, all of the holy traditions, all of the holy people, the conformity and the contract, the pride and the shame. Bruxy Cavey in his book, The End of Religion, suggests just that. He says this, the Bible is far more than the religious holy book for two major world religions, Judaism and Christianity. It is a library of ancient documents that point towards a surprisingly non-religious spirituality. That ultimately culminates in the subversive message and mission of Jesus. Although embraced by many religious institutions as their founding scripture, the pages of the Bible reveal an irreligious agenda, one that is designed to explode religion from the inside out. I am convinced that the Bible holds clues to a way out of our slavish addiction to religious systems, while it simultaneously invites us into a direct connection with the divine. What if that was true? Is that just sort of a clever sort of twist now that religion is out of vogue and there's lots of, you know, bad things in the record? So now let's just change the verbiage and it's not really about that. Or is that actually what Jesus was doing? Is this actually a way that Jesus changed the trajectory of history that then now all of us who come after our lives have been affected as something entirely different, as Bruxy says, a subversive kind of upending or dismantling of religion, inviting us into a direction direct connection with the divine. The question is, is that true? And that's what we're exploring today because I'd submit to you that if it is true, it's really good news. And the biographers of Jesus actually wrote about his life and give us clues to whether this is true or not. And we're looking at the book of Luke in particular, one of their biographers of Jesus, as he wrote the accounts of Jesus. Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus' life, but was close friends. We think his sources were probably Mark and Peter, who were um, uh, disciples of Jesus, eyewitnesses who wrote it down, and Luke wrote it down after the fact about the life of Jesus. And one of the things you'll find is you read Luke's biography, and we're encouraging you to do that online through our Reconnect blog that not only gives you passages to read every day, but helps explain some of what's going on. Luke describes this journey that Jesus is taking, this movement of from Jesus going towards Jerusalem and towards the temple. And, and in terms of Jesus moving towards Jerusalem, this wasn't just sort of a, like a map lesson or, you know, Jesus world tour and he visited here and he visited here. The movement of Jesus towards Jerusalem was significant because the temple was in Jerusalem. You see, there were synagogues in different Jewish towns, but there was only one temple. And the temple was considered the center of Jewish life and faith. You know, they they didn't live in a culture in a day when they would see sort of their political life and their vocational life and their family life and their religious life as sort of separate. They were all integrated. God was at the center. The temple was at the center of all of it. Not only that, the temple was where the The religious leaders kind of lived and operated out of. So everything significant, everything having to do with God, this was the center. uh, It was located in the center, which was the temple. The temple also was considered the place where God literally dwelt. And so people would go there once a year during Passover. The city would get to about three times the population because Jews would make a pilgrimage every year to go to Jerusalem. But one of the underlying questions in the people that were gathering around Jesus and the religious leaders from Jerusalem who were checking him out was, is he going to go to Jerusalem? Because if he is... If what he's saying about himself is true, if what other people are saying about him is true, if he is truly God's representative or God's agent, then he has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go to the temple because the temple is where God lives. The temple is where the religious leaders are. He has to have a conversation with them because they have to bless this and bless what he's doing and say, yes, he's from God because they were the gatekeepers of everything that happened. It's why they lived and operated out of the temple. And so we find, actually, in the passage that was read for you, just follows when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem, and there's a lot of anticipation, and he arrives during the Passover time, when the city would have been three times its population, full of people, and Jesus arrives, and for Luke, the Jerusalem city and the city center of the temple were the same thing. Essentially, him coming to Jerusalem is coming to the temple, which is why, when you read the account, he arrives in Jerusalem, and Luke suddenly fast-forwards, and now he's in the temple. And Jesus comes into the temple and he does something really unexpected. He goes into the outer courts, which has been a large area. And um, the passage described for you there that there would have been people um, with tables set up who were selling animals so that people coming in from out of town could buy animals to sacrifice cuz that's what you did during the Passover and that's why they were all there and because there was three times the number of people in the city and they weren't going to carry their animals on their back for a 100-mile journey or whatever they needed to buy them so they need to change currency so there's all this buying and selling of animals and noise going on and Jesus comes in and starts kicking over stuff turning over the tables and chasing people out it's quite a quite a significant display uh, like a like it was actually a demonstration we, we know he didn't clean the whole place out cuz it was quite a significant area but imagine him like turning over a whole bunch of things and pushing it out of the way. And he says this loudly as he's doing it. My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And there's something really important about what he said. First of all, because he was quoting an Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, a few hundred years before. And and the the people listening would have known that. And and it says the religious leaders are around watching him. And so he's quoting something, and yet he's bringing it into the present to saying, remember how Jesus said, you know, previously when he was reading scripture, this scripture is fulfilled. This was a way of Jesus saying, this is what's going on now. I'm fulfilling this, my house. And he was acting like it was his house. Because the scripture in Luke actually tells us he cleared the place, moved it over, started demonstrating and speaking loudly, and then began to teach there. So he's saying that my house will become a house of prayer. But you, who's the you, have made it a den of robbers. He was not just talking to the people selling it, and they wouldn't have been religious, uh, like chief priests or anything like that. They were just money changers. And there they are. And Jesus is saying, you have made it a den of robbers. In the listening earshot of all of the religious leaders, and they knew he was talking about them. You see, the robbers that he was quoting in, um, in, from Jeremiah and in this present wasn't simply about the people who were like, taking money because they were selling animals. They needed to do it in order to sacrifice the animals as part of the system that God had set up. So why was he calling them robbers? This wasn't just sort of judging commercialism in, in the holy place. The idea of the religious leaders being robbers, which is actually what Jeremiah was talking about, saying, you are robbing the people. Uh, you are separating people away from God. You are robbing them of me and you are robbing them of the justice and the kindness and the goodness they deserve. All of what Jesus had been talking about. And so this is kind of like a culminating event as Jesus finally arrives at the temple, sort of a climax of the narrative, a high point. And Jesus is pronouncing, in a sense, a judgment on both the temple and the temple leaders, on the religious leaders, saying you are totally, you have made a mess of this. You are... um, You are illegitimate leaders. You are robbers. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. He's talking about you. And it's interesting because we know this is what he was saying because the response of the religious leaders is, we're going to kill you. They don't say it to him, but it says that's what they plotted to do. Why? Because he made a mess in the temple. No, because he was saying to them, this is my house. I have the authority here. He began to teach, and you guys are corrupt and bankrupt and now discredited religious leaders. And they would have responded saying, we're going to kill you. You can't talk to us like that. You say how do we know? Well, this was actually the problem they had had with Jesus all the way along. That this was now coming to a head in a very public place, in the place where they supposedly had control and authority. And now he was saying to them what he had been saying all along: was This is not right. This is my house. I'm cleaning house. I'm taking over. You guys don't have the authority anymore. And uh, in his essay in the book on uh, Luke Acts, uh, sorry. So he, he says that, and then he continues on, and re, Luke says, "Right after he says this, clears house, and he begins to teach in the temple. And this continues on. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, the people, the, the people in the temple courts, so and now he's in the, and he's established now, this is where I teach from. And proclaiming the good news, the chief priests pay attention here. the chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Now, this is now coming to a head, the whole thing. They already, behind closed doors, are saying, we're going to kill him. Now they approach him after he's done this demonstration in the temple. And they come to him later, and it's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders in the temple. And this is significant in terms of who all of these people are. And I think in Luke's account, it's the only place where they're all together, actually. The elders represented the traditions of the people. They, They were the ones that said, these are the holy days, and they were the ones who interpreted and made sure people followed the traditions. They were the keepers of the traditions, right? Remember, holy traditions. The priests, they were the people that accepted the sacrifices um, on behalf of the people for their sins, and they were the mediators between God and the people. The priests went between the people and God, brought God to the people, brought the people to God. The priests had a very important role of being the go-between. Um, The teachers of the law were the ones that interpreted the holy book. They taught the holy book. They taught the holy rules. They were the ones that, that described the holy behavior, not just the traditions, but the morality and how you're supposed to live and how you're supposed to conform and be observant. And they were in the temple, which is God's house. And so all of this is happening now in the middle of the temple where these people who represent the entire religious system in the center of religious life in the temple, come up to Jesus and they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. They said, who gave you this authority? This question of authority was them saying, the stuff you are saying, the stuff you are doing, you don't have authority. These are almost rhetorical questions. You, who? Are, it's kind of like the vernacular, who do you think you are? You can't do this. And that's why they say, who? Because they said, who has authorized you to talk like this and to teach like this and to act like this and to say these things about the temple, about the traditions, about the law, about the holy book? Who are you? We have not authorized you to say that. You can't talk like that. And we are the ones who give authority. You don't have it. Who are you to talk like this? And really, they were not just talking about what he had said and done in the temple, but that was a culminating event of all of the stuff that had been going on. As one author says, Jesus and his followers regularly had associated with and cleansed unholy persons. They also disregarded the purity lines around holy behavior, like around food laws, when you're supposed to eat what. Holy times, Sabbath and fasting, are also violated by Jesus and his companions. And finally, holy places and personnel are criticized and disrespected. This is why they were saying to him when they say, who gave you the authority to do these things? These things! You have dismantled, disrespected, violated all of the stuff that we hold together as a part of their religion. And they were completely upset about it. It's why they wanted to kill him because Jesus was essentially saying to them, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I speak on behalf of God. That's why he cleared the space. In a sense, there's, think about this. There's a, this is kind of a physical visual that he was giving as Jesus kind of clears the space, criticizes the leaders, and then steps into the middle of it and begins to teach as the one who has authority. In fact, one of the other um, gospels, when they ask him, by what authority, what gives you the authority to do this? His answer was, destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. And they said to him, that's absurd. It took seven years to build. How are you going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days? Well, what was he talking about? He was talking about himself. He was actually using the temple, like replacing the temple with himself and saying, I am the new temple, destroy it in three days and I will raise it again from the dead. And this is what he was saying. Jesus was essentially taking and looking at all their religious system and saying, it's done, it's over, you don't need it anymore, and, and discrediting the religious leaders who were still holding this thing. And this, this brings us to the point to understand what Jesus and, in fact, the New Testament writers after him were saying. You see, Luke was actually writing this after the fact, right? after Jesus' life, after he had said all these things, and these things were now, at the moment when it was happening, the disciples would have been like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like you can't? Why are you saying that? You can't, don't you know you're going to get yourself killed? Which is exactly what happened. After the fact, they started to understand, wait, what was he doing? And Jesus and the New Testament writers that came after him had a different way of talking about religion because of this. They used the words temporary and obsolete. Religion, because a lot of their religious system was set up by God, but it was temporary. The goal was always that something better would come along. And now because something better had come along, Jesus himself, it was now obsolete. Obsolete means it's irrelevant. It is no longer effective. It is out of date. Jesus and the New Testament writers describe all of religion in those terms. It was temporary at best, and now it is ob. Obsolete. And friends, this is the good news of what Jesus brings. It is actually why he was killed. That Jesus did not come to start a new religion, but to actually invite us to lose it altogether, to leave it altogether into something new. It was temporary at best, and now it is obsolete. And what is the new thing that Jesus invites us into instead of religion? It is not about a contract. It is about a covenant. And this is how we know this was God's plan on all, all along. It wasn't like God was interested in religion and Jesus came and changed his mind or something like that. Jesus came to represent God. The words that God had used to describe his relationship with his people was not one of contract and terms. It was one of covenant, which was a promise. And to help us understand a covenant, right? Any of you that have been to a wedding or have been uh, participants in a wedding where you were the groom and the bride... You pledged, not contract, I hope whatever wedding you were at or that yours, no one took out a thing and said, okay, these are the terms, and these are the terms. You're going to do this. If you don't do this, she doesn't. If she doesn't do that, you don't have, okay, now sign. No, what did they say? I do. No matter what you do, I do. The covenant promise of faithfulness and love, I do. No matter what you do, I will. Jesus comes to remind us that this is what God's relationship with us is like. You don't need the contractual terms of a religious system to guide your relationship with God. It's not how it works. It works because he says to you and me, I do. I love you. No matter what, God has pledged his covenant faithfulness to us. That is how it's always been, and Jesus comes to show us in the flesh. That's why he says, all of this, you don't need this anymore. You have a love relationship. It is not the terms of a contract that guide your relationship with God. It is the promises of a love relationship, and God himself has said, I do first. But secondly, not only is contract replaced with covenant, but it is not about conforming. It is about being Transformed. <laughs> Right, the goal of religion is that everyone would be the same. Just be conformed. Just fall in line. Just do these things. Don't. In fact, like there's no changes. And if there are changes, we've got to make sure they're authorized and they're communicated, and everyone behaves properly. Um, that's what the goal of religion is, is to conform behavior. The goal of God's life and God's relationship with us is that we would be transformed. That we would become new people. And this is the language that the New Testament writers write. Because of Jesus, now you and I have become new creations, new people. That now it isn't about being conformed from the outside behaviorally and looking. It's about being transformed from the inside out that we... are actually able to become new people. This is the heart of our relationship with God now. Governed not by conformity to certain standards and things, but transformation from the inside out. Change comes from the heart and eventually affects the behavior and changes the world. That is the good news. The covenant relationship and the goal of transformation. It's better than religion. It's not safer is it? See, some of us, even though we say, yeah, 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 I know this, in our hearts and in our lives and our ways, we still drift back towards contract and conformity. We still drift back to religion. Why? Because it's safer. We know it. Just tell me what I need to know. I know the things. Tell, right? A lot of us relate to our faith that way. What do I need to know? Tell me the knowledge. I've got the knowledge. I know the terms. And then, what's the behavior? I got to conform. We like that. Why? Because when it comes to religion, when it comes to uh, contract and conformity, we are in control. Just tell me what it is. I need to do it. And And I can maybe even be in control of other people. Hey, you need to know these things. You need to conform. This is what the heart of way that works. That's why we like it. It's safer, but it's not better. God has actually come to rescue us from the pride or the shame that inevitably comes from a life like that into something that says, no, this is about an I do relationship between me and you, which is not safe, right? We say, I do to God, no matter what, I will follow you. No matter what, I will love you. What if God asked me to do something I can't do? What if he asked me to take a risk I'm too afraid to take? What if I sacrifice and it doesn't return to me? What if I give up my life and he doesn't give it back to me? That's dangerous. That's dangerous. It's actually why many people don't get married anymore. It's too dangerous of a commitment to make to someone. Well, could I actually make that to God? God could ask anything of me. That's not safe. It's not, but it's better. Transformation, that's not safe either. Conformity, just tell me what to do and I'll fall in line and everything can stay the same, no disruption. Transformation sounds beautiful, but it's dangerous, isn't it? C.S. Lewis said it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Friends, this is why even though covenant and transformation are not safer, they are so much better. They invite us into the love relationship we were always meant to have and they invite us into become the people we were always meant to be. And this is why Jesus says, religion, it was temporary. It is obsolete. You do not need it anymore. Now you are invited into a living, dynamic, transformational relationship with the living God. Why is it better even if it's not safer? (laughs) Because it's completely one-sided in the best sense of the word. It's better even if it's not safer. Why? It's completely one-sided. Why? Because it depends entirely on God and his faithfulness. Not on us and our conformity, us being perfect. And God says, hey, you violated the contract. It's not how it works. It depends entirely on his faithfulness. And the scriptures say, you know what? His character is to be faithful. He cannot be anything other than faithful. The scriptures, that's why it described as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us, Um, that his his love is deeper than the deepest oceans. That's why it says it is so much greater than us. It is completely a one-sided thing. This whole thing depends on him and his faithfulness and his love, and he is good for it. This is why it's better. This is why we can say, you know what? It may, he may be inviting me out of the safe, controlled environment of contract and conformity, where I'm in control, where I understand the terms. It's all about what I know and how I act into this dynamic love relationship that will bring me into change, that will cause the, will, you know, kind of... Um, sand away or rub against the rough parts of me that will change things, that will rebuild new things into this house of who I am and yet it's better because he's good for it and he loves me. Now before we kind of finish I want to, maybe there's questions that are coming up for you as you've been listening. And I want to invite you even as you listen to this next song, which is really just about how our whole life with God is, is based on Christ alone. That's what this is. And so maybe if the song's familiar to you, you can just kind of rehearse it and say, yes, it's you alone. And if the words are new, you can say, oh yeah, it's, it's not about those things I don't need anymore. It is about him. And then if you have questions, text them in and we'll have a chance to take them up in a few moments. Well, we had a couple of questions that came in uh, during the break, and I wanted to uh, address those with you. One of them was a really good question. Um, actually, two of them connected to this. Does this mean that the Old Testament is no longer necessary for Jesus' followers to read, study, and teach? And someone else said, well, I thought Jesus came and didn't, and said he came to fulfill the law not get rid of it. And I think the short answer is, yes, it is so important to read the Old Testament because, actually, you'll find it isn't that God had a religion in mind and Jesus came and changed the game. I mean, God, Father, Son, Father, Holy Spirit, they're all together, one. But God used the word covenant from the beginning that he made a covenant pledge of faithfulness to his people. And one of the ways to even see the law that God gives them in the Old Testament was they were like vows of a, of a covenant, of a, of a love relationship. And yet, all the way through, we see two things. One, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. It, it was a one-sided relationship. It depended on his love and faithfulness. And yet, we can see that they were meant to, when they came out of, when Israel came out of slavery in Egypt and they get the law, Um, They were people who had been slaves for 400 years, generational slavery. They did not know how to think for themselves. They did not know what a love relationship, all they knew was slavish obedience to cruel masters. God was trying to teach them, I'm not like that. I'm not like the gods of Egypt. I'm not like Pharaoh who has used you up. And so he gives them the law and invites them to begin to learn a new relationship with him. Over time, they were supposed to mature. I think about it like when my kids are really little, they need very simple instructions and they need cause and effect. Hey, if this happens, there's a consequence. There's, you know, discipline or whatever. But as they get older, I give less and less consequences to my kids as they get older. In fact, we're oldest. we don't have them anymore. Why? Right? Because you're supposed to actually learn to in a relationship and now he's becoming mature, they're becoming mature. That was what was meant to happen with The children of Israel. They were meant to grow out of needing so many constraints and learn to live. The problem was, you see, God's faithfulness continuing, they couldn't grow. They could not grow into a love relationship. And so what does God do? Say, forget it? You know, that's over, I'm going to the contract. No. He says, I'm gonna send my son. I will show you what it looks like to love me and live in a love relationship with me, completely dependent on me. It looks like a human being, as we said before, Jesus is a human being fully alive. They needed to see what it looked like if they were to live up to their side of the covenant in that sense. And so that's what this is about. So the Old Testament actually shows us these two threads. God's unending, continuing faithfulness and without Jesus, our inability to actually live in that love relationship. And so we need to read it because the whole story points towards Jesus. Second question that came up is, you know, if it's not about contracts or conformity, then why are we told to pray, give, meet together, read our Bibles? Well, okay, so you're saying, oh, you know, it's not about what you do, but like, why do we do all these things then? Well, I I think that's like, again, if I think about my own life, my own relationships, whenever I get fuzzy on how things work with God, I think about relationships. So I think about my marriage to my wife, Jen. Um, Are there things that she says, you have to do these if you want to be married to me? Well, she's never said that, and that wasn't what she said on the day we got married, and she still, to her grace and credit, has never said that to me. But are there things I do because I love her? Absolutely. Are the things important? Yes. Why? Because they help love grow. Without them, love fades. Without them, love falls apart. You know this. In any important relationship, if you do not cultivate love, it doesn't stay. It it dissipates. It grows apart. And then when things grow apart, that's when we say to each other, you always, you never, you know, that's where, now God's never going to say that to us because it is, he just, his love is faithful and, and covenantal. But we know But this is the way to see, well, why do we meet together? Why so we can remember how faithful the love of God is. That's why we sing all the songs that remind us about who he is. They're all about him. We have a chance to express our love to him. Why do we read scripture? To get acquainted with his faithfulness again, to see the beautiful work of Jesus. He has rescued us out of conformity and contracts and invited us into change. We pray and we give as acts of practices that as we do them, we are not only growing in our love relationship, that's how we become transformed. It's not that we do them and God loves us. God loves us, and as we follow in his love, our lives begin to change. I would say to you, all of these things have changed me as a person. They are what has helped me become more of who God has called me to be. And so hopefully that's uh, helpful for you as you're thinking um, about these questions. As we close here, how do we respond to this truth, this good news that Jesus has invited us not to participate in a new religion, which he started, but to leave religion all together and enter into this dynamic, you know, covenant, transformational relationship with him? I think the first one is to say, for some of us, we need to say, yeah, okay, I need to lose my religion and say, I do. Now, for some of you, that may be the first time. To realize this is, isn't about knowing the terms of the contract and conforming to a set of behaviors. It's actually entering into a relationship with a God who has first said, I love you to you. And so that may be scary, but there may be something in your heart that just says, Oh, I know that's for me. I know that's true. And so you can do that even where you are and just say, God, okay. I'm leaving behind, you know, trying to be good, trying to get better, trying to do good and know all this stuff. I want to enter into a relationship with you. I don't need religion anymore. It was temporary. It's obsolete. I need you. And so if that's true, you can just tell him that and ask him to take over as the the one who leads your life. Even though it's scarier, it's better. And so you can do that right now. And if you do, I'd encourage you just to contact one of us. We'll have a contact information at the end of the service. You can send it because you're not invited to enter into this relationship alone. We have a whole community as we journey together. And so I'd encourage you to do that. And then for some of you, maybe, you know, you say, yeah, yeah, I know that. I've been a Christian. I've been a follower of Jesus. But you see that drift in your life to saying it's all about kind of what I know and conforming my behavior. It's safe and I'm in control. But there's no love. In your relationship with God, you realize this the passion is missing or the passion is gone. Maybe this is a day for you to say, Oh God, rescue me out of that thing that's temporary and obsolete, that is just there whereas I'm in control. Invite me into that, into that, that relationship with you again. Make it alive in me again. And to help you with that, maybe some of you, this is another thing I want to encourage you to do, is ask someone close to you this question: How have I changed because of Jesus? Right? If this is about a transformational relationship with the living God, then we should be changing people. We're, we're not who we want to be, but we're not who we once were. Right? That's the hope. I'm not who I want to be in my fullest uh, belief and dreams about who I was meant to be, but I'm not who I once was. I know I'm changing. And I think all of us can say that in some way, but sometimes we need to recognize where that's happening. So you're going to ask someone close to you, and it could be a really encouraging conversation as they say, oh yeah, you used to be a lot more like this, but now you're a lot less. Or You were never like this, and now I see this. I notice this about you. Could be a friend. It could be a parent. Could be a sibling. Could be a spouse. Or they may say, oh no, you've kind of been stuck, (laughs) you know, and that may be a loving way to answer that question if someone asks you that. and Say, actually, you've been a bit stuck, you know, or this part hasn't quite changed. It's not meant to be a dangerous conversation. It's meant to be safe, but one that invites you and to say, okay, Jesus, keep on changing me. Don't stop. Every healthy, vital relationship with God, because the relationship, it keeps growing. We keep changing. Love deepens and the life keeps changing. And so I just want to encourage you with that as saying it's, you're not meant to be in this static place. If God has invited you to lose your religion and enter into this life-changing, life-giving relationship with him, It's about deepening your love for him, deepening your awareness of his love for you and growing as a person as you are changed. And so I just want to bless you with some courageous conversations this week with the people that are close to you, with God himself. And by all means, invite others in to share with them. And you're going to have a chance to do that in your home group this week. But if you're not connected, by all means, reach out to one of us on our staff.